this is Caleb. I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Hosanna Wong, and we're going to bring that conversation to you in just a couple of minutes. But before that, I do want to let you know that if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, there's two beliefs that really drive a lot of what we do here on the podcast. The first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you've uh, lived throughout life, uh, you've probably realized that there are just some people that it's easier to talk with about uh, certain things than other people. Uh, And that could be for a variety of different reasons. But because of that, we, we don't always feel like that we have someone that we could talk about certain things with. And really what we want to do here on the podcast is create a place to where we can talk about those things. And that even if you don't feel like you have someone in your life who that you can talk with those things about, that maybe you can find a little bit of community here in the podcast. And the second thing is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from everything and from anything as well. And that we don't have to agree with everyone in order to learn from them, that sometimes we can learn from uh, their example of what not to do. And the other thing is, is that like you can learn from things and from different subjects that maybe don't have anything to do with what you do professionally or the main thing that you do. One of uh, one of the things and we're going to talk about uh, this in our conversation is talk about comic books a lot. That's one of the things that I've learned a lot in learning and just in story in general of there's a lot of things that we can learn in many different stories that maybe don't have to do directly with what we do or the direct thing that we're dealing with in our life, but we can take the principle in it and we can uh, figure out how to practice that principle in our own context as well. And so, as I mentioned today, we're talking with, or I'm talking with Hosanna Wong, and I'm so excited to be bringing this conversation to you. I do want to let you know that if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or whether or not this is your first time listening to the episode, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Whether there's a particular person that you would love to hear on the podcast or a subject or a topic that you would love us to cover, or hey, if there's just something that you're learning about that you're really excited about, I would love to hear from you in that as well. And so, uh, yeah, just reach out to me, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Hosanna. Hosanna is an international speaker, best-selling author, and spoken word artist sharing captivating stories of a powerful God with churches, conferences, prisons, and other events around the world. She is passionate about empowering this generation to know who they are, boldly living out their purpose, and reveal God's love to the people right next to them. She was born and raised on the streets of San Francisco. Her sermons, books, and spoken word pieces share her firsthand experiences of loss, hope, and redemption, and her innermost desires to see lives healed and restored by the power of Jesus. She is also the teaching pastor at East Lake Church in the San Diego area and is a speaker at churches around the country. She is also the executive director of Calvary Street Ministries and Outreach on the Streets of San Francisco and appears on TBN's daily show, Better Together. She has released two spoken word albums, Maps, Boots, and Other Ways We Get There, and Figless. And she is the author of the book, I Have a New Name, and Super Added. And her newest book, which we talk a lot about, is How Not to Save the World. And when she is not on the road, her and her husband, Guy, a pastor at Eastlake Church, can be found serving with various ministries, equipping the local and global church, as well as watching basketball, grilling chicken wings, and gardening in their backyard. 
And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Zane, I am so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, we're going to talk a lot about uh, your book, which came out, you know, How Not to Save the World. But one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about and I was really curious about is that you communicate ideas in many different uh, forms, whether that be through spoken word or through messages or through just a, just a variety of different things. And I would just love to hear what are some of the things that you've learned about communicating ideas uh, through multiple different forms that you've learned? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I do communicate in many different forms and no one appreciates that more than my husband. <laughs> Whenever we're having a heated discussion, look, I've got a three-point bullet list for you. I've got a poem for you. I've got a dramatic story for you. It's a whole cinematic experience. No, um, you're right. You know, I grew up doing spoken word poetry. So that was probably my first language, the first way I learned how to communicate to people. I grew up on the streets of San Francisco. My dad was um, a heroin addict who fought in a Chinese gang who ended up finding Jesus. Jesus changed his whole life. And he ended up planning an outreach to living without homes and battling with addictions on the streets of San Francisco um, before I was born. And so as I was raised, um, we had church services on the streets three days a week. That's how I learned church. Um, I learned later in life that when other people said they were also raised in church, we were not talking about the exact same thing. People at my church brought their bottles, brought their needles. But you know that's where I learned that Jesus could save anyone's soul and redeem anyone's story. And it's also where I learned the art of spoken word poetry. And all my friends on the streets did it. They all taught it to me. And it was the first way that I learned how to process my emotions, process the things I saw on the streets process of things I saw in my school, you know, even if people have a different background than me, I think everyone can relate to growing up and perhaps seeing things a little too early or hearing things they were never meant to hear and trying to process what that means. And often it affects our whole lives. And so for me, spoken word was just a way to process my feelings, share them. And all my friends did it. It was just the language of everyone around me. And, you know, now I, I know I write books and I, I, I preach messages, but a lot of that stems from me learning how to communicate through spoken word poetry, which was a way I learned just to communicate to those right around me. And I think at best, when we're writing books for people or ministering at churches or sharing at conferences or, you know, sharing on Sunday services at best, we're communicating the way that people around us are listening, answering people's questions with God's answers for that moment. And hopefully we're just speaking in a language that the people right next to us understand. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, learning to dive into that emotion? Because I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, we don't have the same experiences, uh, yeah. but under those experiences, we have the same emotions for, and they just play themselves out differently. Um, what has helped you better access like the emotion under the experience that helps connect to other people? Yeah. You know, one of the things that spoken word poetry has really taught me and helped me with preaching and just communicating overall is you know, growing up, if anyone's familiar with the underground slam poetry world, um, I, I grew up doing that in the secular slam poetry world before I ever used it as a tool to communicate the gospel to people. But one of the things that that experience really taught me was, you know, you would do these um, competitions, like an open mic where there's prizes, you know, and 
Um, but it, it's, if, if spoken word is not competitive, it can just be an open mic. But if it is competitive, you call it slam poetry. It's at a poetry slam. And if you do one that's maybe more, you know, official, there might be judges, elite judges, people with resumes and awards that are judging the poets. But in the underground slam poetry scene, uh, main priority is to be the voice of the people. And there are not elite judges. Instead, an MC will come up to the front of maybe a very crowded coffee shop or closed down deli or cafeteria at a you know, community college after hours and say, hey, who here has never been to a poetry slam before? And then a bunch of people raise their hands, you know, their sisters dragged them there, their friends made them come. And then the MC will give those people the scorecards and say, you are the judges tonight. And it's this idea that if we are just performing for other poets, if we are just writers writing for other writers, if we just want the elite and the most academic to judge us, then we are no longer the voice of the people. And it's this constant reminder of every time you come into these spaces of you are trying to communicate real stories and, and, and connect with people's real emotions, so much of the work of writing spoken word poetry is actually being connected to yourself and your feelings and connected to the real world you're living in. And it's this beautiful reminder of, you know, we're not here to impress other poets. We're here to be a voice of the people. So you've never been here before. You're a skeptic. Here's the scorecard. Am I still communicating to you? So, so much of the work is done in your real life. And I would say, you know, there's a message in there for preachers too. At my best, I remember what it was like to be reminded every week to be a voice for the people. And, you know, we don't, for people that, you know, share their testimonies, give messages, Bible teach, give sermons, we don't want to just be preachers preaching to other preachers, impressing other people in our academic field. No, we want to be communicating to people who desperately need hope. We want to be communicating that hope. The great news is that Jesus has real answers for people's real questions. In order to know his answers to people's real questions, we need to be in the word of God and know the words and ways of God. But we also need to know the words and ways of the people around us and the questions they're actually asking. And so I think um, that is a way for us to um, maybe a self-audit for speakers. You know, are we plugged into the real world around us? Do we know the real questions people are asking? If we were not to give the other pastors at our church the scorecards or the other speakers at this conference the scorecards, but someone who hasn't come to church in 10 years and say, hey, is this actually communicating God's hope to your real brokenness? And is this helpful for your journey that you're actually on? Is this actually communicating? I think it would help us be better leaders, definitely better people. And I think a practical way is to make sure that you are plugged into a local community, that you're around real people um, and know what people today in your life are actually going through and the questions they're actually asking. Yeah. Uh Tease, tease that out a little bit more. Like, what do you do to find out the, like the voice of the people and like what the people are going through? I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who aren't in the church world. I think mm-hmm. it's important that you keep those relationships. I think it's important that you keep investing in those relationships. I um, still seek out those relationships with other hobbies my husband and I might have that have nothing to do with the church um, as far as, you know, the organize, organized church or people that work in the church. Um, and, you know, a group of people, girls I went to college with that I still am invested in and spend time with, you know, um, we do friends trips every few every few uh, months, um, not in the past year and a half, but in the name of Jesus sometime soon, I'm just going to prophesy that yeah. promise. <laughs> um, but, you know, just making sure that like we're intentional 
as if it was a part of what God has called us to do. Not just that what I do in this church building is what God's called me to do. Not just what mission looks like um, on a mission field, but mission in my real life and my real relationships that we're really intentional with it. Not just, we'll see who calls me. We'll see what happens. Oh shoot, three years have passed and I haven't been intentional with any relationships that don't work with me, that don't, um, that aren't a part of my career. Oh, I haven't done anything for the, for the, for just the joy of relationships. Like that is so much of the life Jesus showed us when he was on earth, that he was constantly making friends, having relationships with people, even before they changed their behaviors, choosing people before they chose him. We see Jesus constantly having relationships with people, having meals with people, going to weddings, hiking up mountains. We see this idea of Jesus resting with his friends. And yet some of us don't make that a priority the way Jesus made it a priority. For some of us, we think that rest and relationships take us away from the mission, but the truth is that it's a part of our mission. And so I think the way that I do that is that I'm highly involved in the lives of my friends that are not a part of the church and certainly not a part of, you know, my specific church so that I'm not just seeing what the people my church are going through or what the people that go to the conferences I'm at are going through, but what people who would never come here are going through and making new friends. I think the older we get, the harder that is. We're not all in the same class in sixth grade, just around each other. It looks like doing a cooking class and meeting other people there sometimes. It certainly doesn't look like you starting hobbies of things you hate and things that are unnatural to you. It's really uh, you being more of yourself and indulging more in the things that God has given you enjoyment in and desires in. And then I think through your commonality, when you step into the spaces and places that you enjoy, um, then connecting with people isn't as awkward. You have this in common, you love cooking, you love pickleball you love putt-putt golf, you love these things and you make more friends, that doesn't mean you have to go do all the hobbies and make all the friends. But I'm saying that we don't want to disconnect from our neighbors who don't know God. We don't want to disconnect from our friends who don't go to our church. We need to be around people that don't see the world the way we see the world. Otherwise, we'll never communicate the real hope found in Jesus to them. Yeah. And I think that's a good transition to, you know, you wrote the book, How Not yeah. to Save the World. And yeah. anytime that someone creates a work of art, I love hearing the story behind yeah. like what made someone want to uh, put this work about art, work of art. And so I would just love to hear, you know, the the thing or the series of events that led you to go, hey, I need to write this book. Yeah. I mean, people told me to write about what I know and I don't know much at this point in my life, but I am an expert <laughs> at how not to do a lot of things and how not to show God's love to people because I've done it so wrong, how not to lead people to Jesus because I've done it so wrong. I'm an expert at how not to save the world. And I wrote this book, um, Lockdown in My House in 2020, kind of watching the antithesis of the book play out on social media, on the news, between people I love, between people I don't even know, and seeing that I'm not the only person who knows the perfect plan of how not to save the world, of how not to show God's love. Many of us have done it very wrong, and I am going to say that I think all of us have at least seen it done very wrong. I think all Christ followers can agree, even if we're not sure about this church thing or sure about this God thing, or if we've been in church our whole lives, that many of us can relate to saying, you know, we've seen a lot of Christ followers share Jesus really wrong. We've seen people be mean and hurtful and aggressive and condescending and judgmental and impersonal. And we know that's not the Jesus way because that's not what Jesus is like. And also 
we like having friends. Like, are we not called to abundant life is the only option for me to just spout theological monologues and be super aggressive about my faith and never have friends or to just be silent about the hope I've found and the freedom I've found and not let the people around me know that hope and freedom is available to them. Are those my two options? So of course, if we think these are our only two options to share God's love to people, we just want to quote the great poet Ariana Grande and say, thank you, next. We don't want to be a part of this. Are these the only options? Um, Jesus was neither of those things. He was neither aggressive nor absent. And we see a better example of how to show people God's love through the actual life of Jesus Christ. And I wrote the book called How Not to Save the World. And it's 14 lies we believe about ourselves, about our purpose and our calling, about our stories, about the people around us and about the church, the lies that we believe that hold us back from being who we're created to be and living as God has called us to live and stepping out in our purpose and sharing God's love. Lies like my story can never impact anybody. Lies like I have to do something impressive to do something important. Lies like I'd be better off doing this alone. Like community would just slow me down. Lies like some people are called to share the gospel of Jesus. Like some people have a gift, but I am normal. <laughs> I'm not spiritual enough, smart enough, or skilled enough to seal the deal. And I think a lot of us think, man, I just don't want to talk about Jesus because what if people ask me questions and I don't have the answers? I truly just don't want to mess this Jesus thing up. Um, I probably have to wait till I have all the answers. I probably have to wait till I have all the knowledge. I probably have to wait till I have the perfect words. I probably have to wait for the perfect moment before I share about Jesus to anyone. And those are all lies the enemy wants us to believe, to make us live in fear of the end results of our relationships, to make us live in fear that we could mess this Jesus thing up, which we can't. We are not the saviors of the world. Jesus is. It's actually amazing news that he saved the world and we don't have to. And it's actually what he wants us to believe so that we are not all God's created us to be and living in the freedom of having real relationships right next to us. This is his plan for less people to find out the hope of Jesus. So I have 14 chapters of 14 lies that hold us back and the truth found in God's word about how we actually can reveal God's love in our everyday lives through our authenticity, through our stories through our invitations, our conversations, our commonality and real stories, through our real relationships and through the beauty of the power of the church, um, which is complicated for a lot of us. That's really the end of the book talking about how the church is a part of God's plan to show the world how loved he is and how we who have had complicated relationships with the church navigate that and are hopefully the change we want to see within it. Yeah, one of the one of the first questions that uh, came to mind just as I was preparing for our conversation uh, today is, and I would be curious for your thoughts on it, is what kind of leads us to this mentality of we f- we do feel like we have to save the world, or we create this hero complex, or 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 God complex that everything depends on us to save the world. And I would just love your thoughts on what drives us to that mentality. Oh yeah, I think the savior complex is so real, even for people that don't know God or don't like God or have, don't want anything to do with the church. This savior complex, if it's all on me, um, is something that we deal with. I actually think it's rooted in a good thing. Our desire, our empathy for people, our desire to help when we see someone that's hopeless and we want to give them hope. Um, I share about in my book that the first time I saw someone murdered in front of me, I was nine years old because of you know the environment we lived on in the streets. And what it was the first time I remember feeling guilt 
like I was supposed to save somebody and I didn't. And I had my baby brother, Elijah, with me and I wasn't able to shield his eyes in time. And the guilt I lived in of not being able to save someone I love. So I'm seeing something hurt that's happening to people I don't know. I do feel empathy and guilt about not helping that. But I think my deepest hurt was about someone closest to me. If I'm being honest, at nine years old, most of my guilt came from, I didn't save Elijah from that. And this feeling of like, I have to be better. I have to do more. It's all on me. I think there's something good about wanting to serve others and, 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 and help others. But the enemy creeps in with his lies and distorts it to make us think that it is our job to save. And of course, he wants us to think that. So we dethrone Jesus from his rightful place of being the savior of the world and see us as those who get to partner with him on his mission. This isn't our mission. This is, this is God's mission. God's mission is to be with every person, to have a relationship with every person. As we say yes to God's call, we're just saying yes to his mission and partnering with him on his that he could be with everybody. And the great news is that we're not on this mission alone. He has a lot of people on this mission with him. He's called all of us and he's working in ways we're not seeing. So I think it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that you, there's loved ones in your life that you are, um, you have a lot of empathy for and you want to help them. It's a good thing that you see brokenness and you're not um, numb to it. It's a good thing. And I think we need to be careful of not letting the enemy distort that good thing and making us think that it's all on us to save because that will lead us to guilt and that will lead us to shame. That will lead us to being stagnant and being still, not doing anything because we feel like nothing we do can ever make a difference. It will make us dismiss the value of the ways we faithfully show up and love people every single day. So I think the enemy loves when we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders and we see ourselves as saviors instead of Jesus Christ. And that's a lie that we have to combat with the truth found in the word of God. Yeah, and, and talk to me a little bit about like kind of the, the the stuff that you've done to combat like that specific truth, like the hero complex, the savior complex truth. And, and, you know, obviously I think it's something that we all, we all struggle. We will all probably struggle with it, um, you know, for maybe the rest of our lives. I don't know. Um, but I would just love your thoughts on working through that particular lie and we'll help you with that. Well, if I'm being honest, the way that I've had to combat it personally, because, you know, me and my husband are both in vocational church ministry. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it can be really easy to think of doing more and producing more as being <clears throat> the main thing we're called to do, the biggest thing we're called to do. And if we don't help every single person or produce every single thing and not all things to all people, then we're failing. Um, and I think a big thing that had to come for us was realizing that how we serve at our church and serve the people of our church and the, the global church, you know, we have a, a nationwide ministry, um, is a part of our calling, but it is not our whole calling that we are also called to find rest in God. We're called to, um, enjoy time together and time with our friends. Like I mentioned, our friends far from God and that we are called to rest in God's presence alone with one-on-one -on -one time with God. And as I mentioned before, I think this is so important. We can often think that rest takes us away from the mission because we feel the pressure to save the world. And if I spend an hour in the word of God and praying to God, then man, look how unproductive I'm being on the rest of my day because I have to save the world. But when you come to a place, when you rely on Jesus first, when you come to a place where you're saying, I'm going out of my way to make time to spend with God, it reminds me that it is from him. He is the source 
He is my fuel. He is the first thing. This relationship is the most important relationship in my life. Ephesians 1, 4 says he calls us first to be in a relationship with him. And then he lays out plans for this world. But for so many of us, especially those that feel the weight of the world in our shoulders, the savior complex, this need to do more, we want to skip the relationship and go to all the plans, thinking the relationships kind of takes a lot of time. So maybe I'll schedule that in like once a week. But the truth is he called us to be in a relationship with him first. And after this is real, then he has some plans. Um, And I think for me, it's been prioritizing actually, not just saying it, not just preaching it, but planning for it, that I have a structure in my life where I'm spending time alone with God before the plans, before I do anything. Jesus gives us an example of that. We see story after story of Jesus ministering to people, doing important things, healing people, doing important things, and then retreating either alone with a small group of people or alone all by himself to spend time with God. There's actually a story in the Bible of Jesus healing a bunch of people, doing Jesus things. And then the next day, his disciples are looking for him and saying, everyone's looking for you. Where are you? And Jesus had planned to wake up early in the morning before anyone woke up, spent time alone with God and said, you know what? Our time in this city is done. We're going to another city now. And how did Jesus know what battle to fight? Jesus first fought to spend time with God. And we see that a story of Jesus disappointing people. We see a story of Jesus not being able to be in this city and this city. But Jesus' calling was first to his relationship with God. And from that place, he knew what to do next. So my point is for me and my husband, when it comes to making sure we're defined by our relationship with God and not by what we do, it's prioritizing that that time comes first so that the things that fall to the wayside are not our relationship with him, but they're the weight that we weren't supposed to carry. They're the pressure we're not supposed to carry. They're the task that are not our whole entire mission. They're just a part of it. So I think it's actually a personal structure of spending time alone with God. That's really hard for me to make my first priority because I'd like to work first thing in the morning. It's like a surrender of my strengths finder, a surrender of my Enneagram number, a surrender of, oh, you know, God will understand if I just do like two hours of emails before I talk to him and realizing why do I think that all these plans are more important than my relationship with God? Um, It's a, it's kind of a a daily repentance and surrender of the things I might want to do and realizing what I need to do in order to live the life I was created to live. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm wired the same way. So I understand, I understand the struggle. In that. Um, I, I want to go back to, you know, you were, you were talking about um, it's our own personal stuff that we don't deal with that keeps us from de- from, um, from spending time with God and focusing on the things that matters most. Is there anything else that's really helped you like work through, you know, those, those false beliefs or those lies or that, that internal uh, stuff that keeps us from doing that? From resting? Uh, from resting or um, or even acting out in, I don't know if the word would be unhealthy ways, but just the um, the internal baggage or the beliefs or the self or the lies that lead us to doing things that aren't healthy or resting or whatever that might be. Yeah. I mean, I think um, me creating a structure and committing to it has been huge for me. Um, And that commitment has really changed my life. And I also think having a couple of people that I'm accountable to um, 
I used to hate that word accountable. And I realized as I made very, a lot of excuses for not having those people, my life really was out of control. Um, even though I was doing good things, I was making these good things, God things and really replacing God with all the good things I was doing. And I have a few people in my life who I'm extremely honest with close friends who also have, you know, similar, um, lives as far as like what their callings are, who are about 15 years older than me. And, you know, some of our best friends that I'm like extremely honest about what I'm doing, how I'm living. And all the time they'll say, it feels like you're saying yes to too many things, or they'll say, Hey, you're doing this really good, or you're not doing this really good. And me receiving, um, what they're saying, you know, as, as feedback, you know, certainly we don't want everybody's feedback. Not everybody is an expert at what you're called to do. So I try to take advice with gratitude and a grain of salt, but I also have a few people in my life that I'm extremely honest with, even when I don't want to be so that they can speak truth into my life about if I'm healthy or not. And I'll push back. They'll say, well, you're saying yes too much. I'm saying, well, look, look, because of this, this and this, God's called me this. And they'll say, okay, okay. I see that. I'm not just saying that like I sit in a corner and have people tell me, but I'm saying I do life with people that I give that permission to. And it's humbling and hard. I really would rather have a cheering section that just like you go girl at every decision I make. But I make decisions a lot of the time out of my feelings and out of my ambitions. And that's not always uh, the best compass. And so I'm, I have a structure of being in the word of God first, though it's not my personality or my preference. Um, and I'm very honest with people around me who I'd rather would impress, but I know that I need them to speak truth into my life. And I, I've decided to surrender in that sense too. So I would say just um, structure with, with time alone with God and the rhythm of always telling the truth to my, my very close community. Uh, you have the, you have this quote uh, in the book, and you know you say uh, it doesn't matter how loud we share Jesus if we are speaking a language that people don't understand. And I was just curious to ask, what are some of the ways that followers of Jesus tend to speak in a language that you know people who aren't followers of Jesus just don't understand? Yeah, you know, both my parents were deaf in in one ear. They weren't born that way, but at some point in their lives before they met, they both were deaf in one ear. By the time we had they had kids. Um, and so our house was, you know, loud and confusing, <laughs> but something that happened with us growing up is that, you know, we kids would shout at my parents across a grocery store or shout at them across the living room. And, you know, they wouldn't be able to hear us often. And we would shout louder and shout louder and, and maybe be more aggressive in how we were talking to them. But one of their ears couldn't hear. And sometimes if we yelled too loudly into one of, you know, their ears, it would give them headaches. The best way to be heard wasn't to scream or shriek loudly across a department store. The best way was to find them and touch them on the shoulders and make sure that they saw you and you saw them and, and to speak into their good ear. Uh, getting louder is rarely the best way to be heard. We want to be able to speak in ways that people can understand. And I think at our worst, Christ followers, myself certainly included, we do this too. People don't understand the hope we're trying to convey. People don't understand the story we're trying to share with them. And we can get so frustrated at them, the people in our lives, our loved ones, our family members, our friends, our classmates, our roommates. We're trying to talk to them about God, but they're kind of averse to it. And we're like, so mad at them. We're yelling louder. We're talking about God more. We're using bigger, more spiritual words, thinking that the way I saw this preacher 
preach is how I should be preaching to my college roommate, thinking that I have to do it in some way that's not natural to me and certainly unnatural to the person listening. And so the same is true. Getting louder is rarely the best way to be heard. It's better to get up from where you are and go to where the person is to communicate to them. I think that happens with um, the volume of how we speak without being people who listen, listen to where people really are, listen to what people are really going through. We are speaking to people through our lens of the world, how we see it, our childhood, our experience, our experience in our lives and our experience with God at people who have a totally different lens of the world than us. They had a different childhood. They might've grown up right next to you. They might've grown up in the same culture. They might speak the same language, but they might see relationships differently. They might see God differently. They might see communicating as a whole differently. And for so many of us, we are getting louder and more aggressive because we don't see the world other people see it. We don't agree with their morals. We don't agree with their viewpoints. We don't agree with what they're saying to us. And so we're getting louder and more aggressive without taking the time to listen to how they see the world. That can also come through using super spiritual words that people don't understand. And I think at our best, we see how people speak. We see people's lens. And then we learn how to communicate the hope of Jesus in a way they will understand, in a way that brings God's real answers to their real questions. You know, 2 Corinthians 520 calls us Christ ambassadors. And in the modern world, ambassadors typically have to be bilingual. They have to know fluently the language of the kingdom, the king, queen, nation that they are representing so that they fully grasp the message that needs to be conveyed. And then they have to be fluent in the nation that they're going to, to speak to the leadership of the, the culture they're going to so that they can accurately and effectively communicate a very important message to people who really need to hear. But that other culture might have gone through different wars. They might have a different lens. They certainly have a different history. So you could all day long say, nope, I'm just going to say it the way that the first kingdom shared it. But then the kingdom you're going to won't understand it. And it'll, be, it'll fall on deaf ears. And it might give people headaches. And it's actually not conveying the important message. If the point is not just to talk at them, but to actually communicate an important message, we're going to have to learn how to be bilingual. We're going to have to know the word of God and what God is saying and the hope found in God and his word. And we're going to have to know the language of the people we're going to, our neighbors, our loved ones, our family members around the holidays, our baby brothers, our sisters, our college roommates. We're going to have to know their lens of the world a little bit better to communicate a very important message to them. Yeah, I love that illustration so much. That's so helpful to see it. Um, I'm curious to know, do you have any favorite questions that you love to ask people? Questions I love to ask people? Yeah. Yeah, like I'll, I'll I'll give you like one of my like one of my favorite questions to ask people uh, just to get to know them better. Is I love asking. Tell me what you're most excited about right now. Do you have any questions oh. like that? Not really. I don't think so. I think I play off what I know of them. Like if I'm with someone, like hi, nice to meet you. Is my husband I'm like, oh, you have kids? Like no, do you? Like yeah, we have three. And I say, oh, which one's your favorite? And it usually like kind of dismantles yeah. them. They're like my favorite kid. <laughs> I was like yeah, I was I was my parents' favorite. So I'm wondering if you do you yeah. have a favorite? Like something yeah. about them or like, oh, I'm really into college football. I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, what's your college team? My husband's is Michigan. Go blue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, had to say it on your podcast. Um, 
I'm, you know, I'm not a, a college football fan. I grew up in, you know, the Bay Area and college football is not huge there, but I call it my team in law. I don't know. Does your spouse also have a different team? It, I don't think that I have like these specific ones. Cause even if you ask me right now, what am I excited about? I don't, I'm not even sure what I would say in this moment. So maybe I need to be better at that. I just think that I don't have like the set ones, but usually about whatever's going around or whatever's about them. Yeah. I've, um, try to find what we have in common. I think the power of yeah. commonality is like one of the most powerful things in the world. Yeah. Uh, talk to me more. And, and I imagine that finding common ground with someone would be one of these ways. Um, what's helped you uh, engage in like uh, deeper levels of conversations, like beyond like the surface level talk or more meaningful conversations with people? Yeah. I mean, I can share with you. I know one of the things we talked about yeah. was um, my baby brother, Elijah which yeah. I think is something a lot of people might relate to listening. I share this story for the first time in my new book, How Not to Save the World. And I really needed permission uh, from my baby brother to finally be able to share that with the world. You know, it's extremely personal for him. And I'm so grateful to him for allowing me. But I think a lot of people can relate to, there's a friend, a coworker in your life who you love. You want to share with them about Jesus, but you're not sure how to connect um, in a natural way to be able to get there. Or we have a loved one, a family member, little brother, little sister. Um, someone that lives in your own house or someone that you see around the holidays, but you want them to know Jesus, but maybe you're wondering if there's any way that they ever can, doesn't feel like there's any way talking about anything, much less God. And, you know, I've done that really, really wrong. One of the best examples of me doing that really wrong was with Elijah. When I was 18, um, my, my dad, my hero who, you know, found Jesus and led all these people to Jesus on the streets of San Francisco. Um, he got cancer and he passed away. And when I was 18, my baby brother, Elijah was 12 and Elijah shut down emotionally. Sort of what you were saying earlier, you know, we lost the same person, but we really had two different experiences. My lens as being an 18 year old girl and him being a 12 year old boy was a very different experience for both of us, even losing the same person. And I ministered at Elijah so wrong. I was really bad at it. I kept telling him not to be sad. It's not God's plan for him to be sad. It's against God's will for him to be sad. He needs to have bigger faith and pray bigger prayers. And God's going to use this for his testimony one day. And Elijah was 12 and he missed his dad. And I noticed over time, because I was seven hours away from my hometown in college, um, when I would call him, he wouldn't want to talk about anything that I wanted to talk about. He just wanted to talk about superhero comic books. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about superhero comic books, you know, and, but I realized at a point that I was just so mad at Elijah for not seeing the world the way I saw it. And at a point I realized that if I wanted to have a relationship with him at all, I could not wait for him to step into my world. I had to step into his so I started becoming obsessed with superhero comic books. I didn't love it at first. I really just made the decision of I'm going to figure out how to connect with my brother. So he talks to me at all. And he doesn't want to talk to me about anything I want to talk about. So I'm just going to see the world the way he sees it. I don't think I was able to articulate it like that at the time. I think I was just like, all he's doing is asking me questions I don't know the answers to. So I'm going to get some new literature in my life, I suppose. And I would drive seven hours into my hometown, San Francisco, go to thrift stores with him and buy vintage comic books. We really talked about nothing else. Um, and once Marvel started coming out with all these movies, I would drive into 
town and we wear Marvel t-shirts and get a big popcorn and watch the premieres on the big screens. Uh, no one could have prepared me for the commitment that was going to be <laughs> and the many Marvel movies that would bless us infinitely. But, um, you know, over the years, it really just opened a door for me and Elijah to have a real relationship, to have for him to know what it was like for someone just to be with him and for him without needing something back from him. And I'm not saying it was easy. I'm saying I found something that we could connect in that wasn't really my hobbies, but it was his. And about two years later, you know, um, I took him to a San Francisco Giants baseball game. Well, not into the game because we were broke, you know, but we went outside of the stadium yeah. and we held like a little handheld radio and like listened to the screams from the stadium as we're listening to the play-by-play on our handhelds. And I just, I remember asking Elijah, how do you feel about God? You know, at this point, I've kind of like earned a relationship with him. Yeah. And he answered me and he said, I'm mad. And that was actually a lot of emotion for Elijah to share. And he just said, I'm mad. And I didn't have all the right words to say because I had just proven for years that I knew the perfect plan of how not to save Elijah. <laughs> yeah. I had always like sent him sermon clips of me, like watch my sermon, watch my sermon, watch minute 10. Um, but I realized Elijah didn't need a preacher. He needed a big sister. So instead of trying to be above him, I just kind of met him where he was. And the truth was that we had that in common. I didn't have answers for him. I said, I'm mad too. He was like, I don't know why God would let this happen to us. I don't know what God's plan is. And instead of me trying to pretend like I had the right spiritual words, the truth was is that I didn't know either. I also wasn't sure. And we had that in common. And I think that was helpful for him that I wasn't going to spout spiritual words, especially when I didn't have the answers. I just said, I, I, I acknowledge I also don't have the answers. Maybe we can pray to God about that together. Try to read God's word and see what he says. And I actually think that commonality made him trust me more too that I was also admitting that I didn't have the answers to this that I was hurting like he was hurting I wasn't above him the truth is that people don't want to be impressed people want to be seen people want to be known people want to know they're not alone there is no point in putting on a facade to impress the world that Jesus called you to serve and so it was actually years of me having this constant relationship with Elijah, trying to do my best to listen, trying to do my best to be with him. And the truth is that it was 11 years of a constant relationship with Elijah like this, where I did not do it perfectly. I fumbled through it a lot. Elijah had to give me a lot of grace as I also was also growing up and figuring out how do I live and how do I should how do I follow Jesus? And then how do I talk to you about Jesus? Elijah also had to give me a lot of grace. It was an imperfect 11 years of a constant relationship with Elijah. Um, but it was 11 years later where Elijah came over to me and my husband Guy's house and said to us, I'm ready for the joy you have. I'm ready for the hope you have, the peace you have. I know it's Jesus because you've told me a hundred times. So I get it. <laughs> and praise God that he also uses overbearing older sisters. Praise the <laughs> Lord. Um, but you know, I didn't have the perfect words to say. I didn't go to school for this. And I'm sure any freshman in any Christian college could tear apart the right words I didn't or didn't say, or the perfect theology, or you know what, how long it took me to really get to a place where Elijah entrusted me with such a sacred moment. But in that moment, I realized it didn't matter how much pressure I put on myself for the perfect words, how much pressure I put on myself to be Elijah's savior, how much pressure I put on myself to do this in some kind of um, you know, step-by-step -step way. 
the truth is that through a real authentic relationship where Elijah was in close proximity to me and he saw that what I was saying wasn't just the words I was speaking, but it was the truth I was living. He saw how Jesus was transforming my life and I was becoming more fearless. I was becoming more hope-filled. I was becoming more gracious. I was apologizing more. He just saw how Jesus was transforming my life because we had a real relationship. And then he was like, oh, that thing you have, I want to. You've told me about it. Okay, I'm ready and I believe you. And I know that you're telling me the truth that there might be a God that just wants to be with me and for me because as you've been talking about him, you've been with me and you've been for me. And Elijah gave his life to Jesus that day. And I didn't do it perfectly. Even after we said, amen, I didn't know what to do. I was like, what do I do with my hands? (laughs) Do we hug? Like we're not an affectionate family. We're very Asian. It's like, oh my gosh, what do I just like rub your back? Um, Do you want food? Let's go get some food. So we got some food afterwards and You know, I didn't do it perfectly. And I just want all the listeners to know, you know, if you want a guide to how to perfectly lead everyone, you know, to Jesus, I have no idea. (laughs) But what I do know is that there's people in your life who need to know they're not alone. And why would they believe us that the God we're talking about wants to be with them if we don't even want to be with them? One of the best things about Jesus is that he's not far and distant from us, out of touch or out of reach. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us, God with us where we really are. And if you want to reveal God's love to the people right next to you, many times your greatest witness will be your withness. How are you coming alongside of people and being with them where they really are? And this has been one of the biggest truths that has transformed my life. It's really the thesis of the book, but it's kind of the thesis of my life from here on out. How is your witness today with your loved ones? How is your witness today with your spouse? How is your witness today with your kids, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your classmates, with your church? How is your witness today that we are called to show God's love to people the way that Jesus did, being with people where they really are? And so I would say that, you know, that was a way I did it really wrong. And God gave me a lot of grace and my brother gave me a lot of grace. And the great news is that wasn't on me to save Elijah from the moment I didn't shield his eyes in time when I was nine years old to the 11 years that at times I felt like it was all on me to save Elijah. The truth is that Jesus is the savior of the world and he's the savior of your Elijah's. He's the one who so badly wants a relationship with all the people in your life. And you get to play a role in letting people know how loved they are. So they kind of know what God's love is like. And you get to play a role in showing them the hope found in Jesus. But it's not on you. The pressure is not on you to save the world. And that is the most freeing thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And it just reminds me, like everything that you're saying just reminds me so much of what Jesus said of just, I want you to love people the way that I love them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did want to ask, I I am a... uh, I'm a huge comic book nerd as well. I would, oh, cool. I would love, yeah, I would love to know uh, what comics did you guys bond over? Yeah. So at the time, I'll be very honest for all the comic, pe- comic book people listening. We love DC far more than Marvel. Uh-huh. DC has better villains. Like the Joker is the best villain of all time. Um, I just love the story so much more and the personality so much more. And the villains really made that universe the best loving that they come from other universes to earth. They're not really a part of 
you know, like the physics of Earth. Um, But they have all these other universes, especially Green Lantern. The many universes within all the different colors of rings is like one of like the coolest things I think to nerd out about. So I just like love the Green Lantern universe. And we love Superman and Batman. And here's the thing. I used to feel like it was lame to say that like Superman and Batman duo was my favorite. Because it's like, oh, that's obvious. But the more you really read all the comics, it's the main thing because it's one of the best things. This duo is incredible. And um, there's their dynamic of kind of like the perfect boy from Kansas and the very imperfect, you know, rich guy. So anyway, we love Batman and Robin. We love Justice League. And I could really nerd out about Green Lantern and all the (laughs) universes. But I will say that, like, it's been a humbling, uh, surrendering sanctification process with Marvel coming out with so many better movies. It's hard. And I try to have an ego about it. And I try to be prideful to all my Marvel fan friends of, like, DC mm-hmm. over Marvel every day. And then year after year after year, these DC movies are really letting me down. And so I do just enjoy Marvel movies. I love the Marvel movies. I think the Avenger movies are so entertaining. And I really don't know as much about their comic books. We loved the X-Men comic books, but besides that, we didn't really dive that much into Marvel comic books. So I don't know. It's when I'm like watching an Avengers movie, I'm not actually like, oh, that's not the comic book. Oh, and Spider-Man. If it's Spider-Man or X-Men, I will be a little, I get irritated at Spider-Man movies a little bit because they've all taken so many weird liberties. But um, anyways, this is a very long answer to a very short question. But now I'm in this constant humbling process of like, Marvel movies are better than the DC movies. I'm proclaiming a DC comeback in the name of Jesus. Um, but I don't know if it'll happen, you know, this year, though I'm looking forward to some things coming out. The Batman, the Batman with Robert Pattinson, I think. Yeah. I have high hopes. And that has always been my downfall. Yeah. <laughs> that has always been my downfall. But now I think maybe it's maybe it's maturity in the Holy Spirit, but I've come to a place of trying to enjoy them all. And not come as a cynic, but come as like, look at entertainment. After such a hard couple of years, look at this joy on my screen. So I think I've become a, I've become a big Marvel fan now. But I was we weren't big Marvel fans in the comic book world, to be honest, at the time. I think we really, and I think he was really into the different ages of Superman. Like the many different outfits and, and ways that Superman was presented over the years was kind of the thing he nerded out on. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm more of a Marvel person myself. And oh I my so resonate, Spider-Man and X-Men. <laughs> Favorite, favorite two. See, yes. I'm like, oh, we, really, we didn't really read Marvel. Well, except <laughs> Spider-Man and X-Men. Clearly, you know, we're, I'm a Christian. <laughs> hey, at least for me, those are the best two that you can read, in my opinion. So funny. <laughs> so funny. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, w- one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and then I just want to give you a chance to uh, just talk about anything that we haven't talked about that we want to cover. Um, One of the things that really stood out to me is, uh, is through the book, you talk about that there was a time to where you were embarrassed by your Asian heritage as well to where you, you kind of wanted to downplay it a little bit. And I would just love to hear uh, kind of your process or part of your journey to going through like, no, I'm, this is a part of who I am and I'm, and I'm going to embrace that. Yeah. Um, Growing up, I was only Chinese girl in my class. And I don't know if I would have been able to vocalize that I didn't like the Asian part of me. I think at the time I would have said it probably that I just hated sticking out. Like what a lot of kids feel based on their, any part of them that feels like is different from their classmates, right? Like as a kid, I don't think I'm internalizing like, oh, it's because I'm Asian. But I noticed like my eyes were smaller than all the girls in my class. And even before girls were like really doing makeup, I was learning how to make my eyes look bigger how to curl my eyelashes, how to do my eye makeup, just to make me look like my friend. 
I don't think I thought I hate myself. I want to be different. I think I was just like, oh my gosh, I stick out. I want to look like everybody else. Oh, here's a smart way. Like, I think I was thinking this is smart. Now I look like everybody. So clearly that didn't make much of a difference, but I think I just hated sticking out. You know, I was even thinking the other day about, I went to Starbucks and I always said that my name is Anna at Starbucks. I've always said it. I, I can't remember a time not saying my name is Anna at a Jamba Juice Starbucks because the name Hosanna is kind of different and it's a whole thing. People are like, oh, like Jose, is there a J? It's like, no, it's not like Jose in the girl version. And then if they like grew up religious, whether Catholic or, or anything, they're like, oh, and then they want this whole, whole conversation. And I just like want my Starbucks yeah. and I don't want to talk about my name all the time or people spell it. It's like this whole thing. And so I discovered very early on, I can't even remember when, just to go by Anna. It's, it's not really a lie. It's like half my name. Though no one's ever called me Anna, I've just decided that all my baristas can know me by Anna. And I just kind of realized the other day, even my husband was like, I meant to ask you when we started dating, what, when did you start writing Anna? No one calls you Anna. And I just realized it's kind of, when I thought about it, I was like, you know, I'm not ashamed of going by Anna. I'm still going to go by Anna today on my way to the airport and get a Starbucks. But I realized that it's kind of, you know, a small thing that shows kind of a greater thing I've gone through in my life of trying to be half of myself to make it more convenient for everybody else and maybe make it more convenient for me. I'll try to look more like all of you. I'll try to um, have a name that's easier for everyone. And I'll try to um, shape shift into what I presume is the mold. And I think a lot of people can relate that sometimes we feel like we don't have the right story. We don't have the right background. Our story is too different or it's not different enough. We don't want to stick out. We don't want the attention or, you know, we think that there's shame in our story or that there's something about us that is a little bit less than everyone else, that perhaps we are the supporting cast for the main characters of the world. And for me, I just hated sticking out. I hated, um, even like my dad's background was so different from the background of the kids I went to school with. So I wouldn't talk a lot about my dad. I wouldn't talk a lot about our ministry to those without homes. I wouldn't you know, talk about my Asian heritage. I learned how to water down the details of my story to be more accepted in the places and spaces I was in. Well, as I got older and then I started you know, sharing spoken word poetry and then preaching at churches, I realized that in many ways, I was still watering down a lot of the parts of my story and who I was in order to perhaps be more accepted and maybe more effective in the spaces and places I was called to. Early on, a couple of leaders told me that I didn't um, look that Asian and I could probably get away with not being Asian. So if I didn't go with the last name Wong, it might help my career to be more accepted in the places that I felt called to. And I believed them. I, and I, I want to say like, I didn't know any better, but part of me is like, man, I was old enough to know better, to know who I was in Christ. I, I was old enough. And yet I stopped going by Hosanna Wong to water down that part of myself. And if people would have known my spoken word career five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, they wouldn't know me as Hosanna Wong. I went by the pen name Hosanna Poetry. That's what all my spoken words are under on iTunes and Spotify. I thought that, man, if I'm less specific, if I'm just kind of more vague, Hosanna Poetry, you don't know where this ambiguous racial hair comes from. You know, like you don't know who she is or where she's from. If I say less about my background, if I say less about where my family's from, if I say less about the ministry I was actually raised in, then maybe then I can be more effective. Again, just like as a kid, I don't see this as insecurity. I see this as smart. 
and strategic. The less I am, the more effective I can be because I don't want the details of my life to be walls of God doing what he wants to do in and through me. And I had to come to a place where I realized those were all lies that the enemy wanted me to believe. And all these speakers, men and women, who I was trying to shape shift to be like, at one point, it was a lot of them who took me under their wing and said, all right, kid, it's time to be who you are. It's time to tell your story. And when we see the truths found in the word of God, it combats all the lies is that we have believed that our story is not enough, that our background's not enough, that we are less than or second rate from anybody else. The truth that we see in Genesis is that we were made in God's image, which means that uh, we look good today because we look a little bit like God. We are made in his image. We look good. Value runs through our veins. Dignity is in our DNA. When I'm saying something is wrong about how I look, I'm saying there's something wrong with the one who created me. The truth is that I've made in God's image and I'm made good. We also see in Ephesians 2.10 that we were made for good things, that actually my personality and even my questions and my quirks and the things I like and I don't like, when God said, how am I going to show people how loved they are at this moment in time? He created us specifically. He said, you're made for good things. It's a good thing that you like the things you like and you're from where you're from. It's actually a good thing you're made this way. And then we see in 1 Peter 4 that we were made for the good of others, that we were made good and we're made designed for good things. All the things about us that make us who we are, these are good. And we're made for the good of others. That means it's actually a good thing for my friends that I'm here. It's actually a good thing for my husband that I'm his wife. It's actually a good thing for my church that I'm in it. I was actually made for good things. It's a good thing that you are here today. And when I realized the truth found in God's word, I realized that I'm made in God's image. I not only have access to know him, but I have authority given by him to make him known. And I also not have, I don't just have the permission, but I have the responsibility to use all that I am and all that I've been through in order to share the story of Jesus through my real life. And I realized that if I didn't start telling my real story, I was going to become a part of the problem perpetuating this same lie that anyone else had to cover up who they really were. God actually wants to use your real story to reveal his real power to real people today. And so I started going by Hosanna Wong. I started sharing my real story, my background, my real hurts, my real insecurities, the real things Jesus set me free from. And I think even if people didn't relate to me specifically, I think people, um, relate to feeling like an outcast, like an underdog, and like knowing that we are not all the same mold and that we are not all the same thing. And that um, it is, there's not just room for you, but there's need for you. You were made good for good things and for the good of others. And that's changed how I see myself um, on God's mission, but it's changed how I see others now on a mission to help other people share their real story and be more of who they really are. Yeah. Well, one last thing I want to ask you is, is there anything, I know we've covered a lot, but I always love people just giving the people opportunity to say whatever there's on their mind. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that you say or mention? Um, I guess the only thing that I would say is, is to anyone listening that has had a complicated relationship with the church, um, me too. And I think some of us, um, we've been hurt by individuals in churches 
and we've had difficult times um, in the buildings of churches. And some of us, we can be tempted at times. I know I was to say, you know, 10, 10 years ago, I packed my life into suitcases and started traveling the country to talk about Jesus. And I had a hard heart towards the church because I've been deeply hurt by the church. I've seen things I shouldn't have seen. And I heard things I was never meant to hear. And so I kind of just saw myself outside of the church. Like I was one of the people who said, I love Jesus, but I don't love Jesus people. And as I traveled around the country and, you know, for four and a half years, I didn't have a home address. I just lived from guest room to guest room, cotton living room to cotton living room, hotel room, to hotel room, you know, missionary house at a church to basement to guest room for four and a half years, just talking about Jesus in prisons, recovery ministries, conferences and churches. And, you know, God was calling, I thought at the time God was calling me to do something, but I see now that God was calling me to become someone. And what was happening off stage was this healing for me as I was with pastors and their wives and their kids staying over an extra night after their church services to be a part of their small groups on Mondays or staying over an extra week to spend Thanksgiving with them in their church, seeing people really trying to be real, trying to be honest, fight for their communities, fight for the people they love, not on some kind of pedestal. Like I saw what the church could be. And I realized that I could be a part of creating the community I longed for a real authentic group of people who are real about what they're going through and how Jesus really interacts with our real lives. And I would just want to encourage anybody who also struggles with the community of the church. We've, some of us have seen it done wrong. Some of us have had to get out of unhealthy environments. But as far as the overall capital C church, the community of believers, I want you to know that the church is better when you're in it. And the only way we're going to see change within the church is if people who actually love God and really love people stay in it and are the change from within it. We're not going to see change if we just say, I can't stand all those people, so I'm leaving it. We're not going to see change if we just write out these long rebuttals on Facebook that a watching world who doesn't know God sees and say, man, here's a long list of all the reasons why I'm disappointed in their spiritual customer service and I'm just so over all those people. We're only going to see change within the church and lives truly healed and restored by the power of the gospel if we say, we're the people. We're the people we've been praying for. We're the people we've been begging God for. Someone has to show this world, show people in our lives how really loved they are. And we're the people. Let's go. And so that's my encouragement to everyone today. Just because we've seen it done wrong doesn't mean we can't be the ones to do it right. And I'm looking forward to being alive in the same generation as all of you fumbling through it. Thank God we're not the saviors, but let's stay in it and figure out how we can be healthy and be a part of what God wants to do in today's world. Yeah. Well, Jose, and I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, How Not to Save the World. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Yeah. I mean, if you're an Amazon Prime lover, it's there for you. Um, How Not to Save the World, you know, on Amazon. Also, if you are like, I don't love to read. I love podcasts. I love audiobooks. I read the audiobook. So you go get the audiobook, get it on Audible. Um, and, and, and do that. And also, um, Hosanna.wong on Instagram on Instagram is probably what I'm on the most. I love posting sermon clips and book clips. I really believe in interrupting the scroll with truth. You're just casually scrolling and boom, remember who you are. And so, um, follow me on Instagram at Hosanna.wong and get the book, get the audio audio book if you want. And if there's someone in your life who doesn't know what they're called to do, I would say gift it, gift the audio book, gift Kindle. You can, uh, gift 
digital things. Um, and I know it'll, it'll bless your life and your faith and your journey. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for just doing the work and putting that into the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. I think coming out of that conversation, there is uh, three things that <laughs> there's three things that really come to mind. Now there's, there's so many things. This is, uh, this was such a fun conversation to have. The first thing is this is what we were talking about is that even though we don't all have the same experiences underneath those experiences, we all experience the same emotions under those, you know, we all have felt lonely from time to time or angry or jealous or guilty or betrayed or resentful, whatever it is underneath that experience, or we feel, we feel like an outcast as a Jose, Hosanna was talking about. And underneath all of those experiences, even though they're different, we all have common emotion in it. And we've all felt the same feelings. We maybe just responded to them in different ways because of the experiences that we went through, or we chose to respond in a different way than other people to the emotion that we're feeling. Just as Hosanna was talking about in her story with Elijah, the second thing that really stood out is the idea of being ambassadors and learning learning the common language of the people that you're speaking to. And if you view yourself as an ambassador, just as uh, Hosanna was talking about and the Apostle Paul talks about that that requires learning the culture of of uh, of the you know the quote unquote country of which you're going in or learning the culture and the language of the people that you're interacting with on a day in and a day out basis and I think that's something that I try to think through is am I am I integrating myself into the culture of the people that I am trying to care for and the people that I do uh, life with as well and so figuring that out and figure out what that looks like. And I think the last thing, or at least the last thing that comes to mind right now, is what she talked about of of her journey of learning to embrace um, uh, her her uh, Chinese heritage as well. And you know, for her going through a time to where she didn't she didn't think that it would um, she didn't feel like she was able to do that. And I think for me, realizing even though you know I'm I'm not Chinese, uh, but we, I think we all have a part of ourselves to where maybe we are embarrassed of, or maybe ashamed of for one reason or another, and that we maybe don't want that to be part of our identity. And so I think realizing for me that the, that, uh, being willing to integrate ourselves. And that's, that's really one thing that stood out to me throughout this whole conversation, you know, not, not even just about identity, but what we were talking about with, uh, comic books and, um, and not being ashamed of the things that we like, that we like, and just realizing that that is part of being a whole person, and just the whole journey to live a a more integrated life. And that's something that I'm trying to figure out more. Is that I don't want to be one person, or have all these, or I don't want to compartmentalize my life. How can I live a more integrated life? And so this whole conversation just has me thinking about a whole lot of different things. And so I was really grateful to have uh, the opportunity to speak with Hosanna. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any episodes, any future episodes of the Learner's Corner podcast is by hitting subscribe or follow on whatever podcast player you use. Uh, And I would appreciate it uh, if you left a rating and wrote a review on whatever podcast uh, you use, whether that 
um, is Apple or, or whatever that may be. That would mean a lot and leave it a rating also. And I would love to hear from you as well. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would love to hear some of the things that you took away from it or some of the other guests or topics that you would love us to cover on the Learner's Corner as well. Or um, either just any, any questions that you have or resources or things that you're really loving right now that you're learning from. I would love to hear from you. And again, the best way to reach out to me is through Learner's Corner Podcast at gmail.com. And I think that might be all that I have for today. And so I do want to give a quick couple of thank yous to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast, Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast, to uh, Hosanna for being on the podcast and just engaging in such a, such a fun and a wonderful conversation as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. I think that's all that I have for today. And so... My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.